Anyone who's serious about defending the unborn is sure to encounter some or all of the objections I'm about to attempt to answer in this podcast. So let's address them with compassion and truth. My name is Adam Butler, and you're listening to Bubblegum Gospel Podcast. If you haven't listened to part one of this topic, make sure you do so. That's where I lay out my basic case for the pro-life position. But today, I want to focus solely on some of the most common objections to the pro-life or anti-abortion position of the unborn. We briefly address the most common response to one who is against abortion, and that argument being, my body, my choice. The problem with this statement, of course, is that it's simply not true. The baby in the womb, from the moment of conception, is a unique human being. It's not simply a part of the woman's body. In fact, the majority of the pro-abortion narrative commits the same logical fallacy known as begging the question. This occurs when one or more of the argument's premises are assumed in its conclusion. The premise being here that the unborn is in fact not human, and therefore abortion is not wrong. Again, most or all of the pro-choice arguments fail unless it's true that the unborn is not human. You see, this brings us to another common objection. Okay, they might say, Perhaps we don't know if it's a human or not. I would argue that of course we do, based on the science alone. But even if we didn't know for sure, should we not err on the side of life? After all, I've heard it illustrated once before, if you're hunting with your partner, and you don't know where he or she went, but then you hear some ruffling in the bushes, you would potentially be making a huge mistake by simply shooting into the bushes without knowing for certain if you're shooting a deer or if you're actually shooting your partner. If it is the case that we don't know whether the unborn is human or not, we would be wise to assume that it is a human life rather than run the risk of killing that which proves to be human life, all for the sake of choice. Well, it may be a human, but it's not a person, the abortion proponent may argue. Well, firstly, I believe this is simply an arbitrary distinction. But even so, every time throughout history that we've tried to claim that some human beings are not persons, there have been disastrous implications. Take American slavery, for example. African-American slaves were not considered people. Instead, they were property. Likewise, in the case of the unborn, we're considering them not to be persons, but body parts. Other examples of this wrong assertion include the Jews of the Holocaust, and even women at one point were considered less valuable than men. Another common objection I run into is this one. What about rape and incest? Before we even attempt to answer this one, let's be abundantly clear. Women who are the victims of rape and incest deserve our love and support. We as the church especially must be willing to reach out and support survivors of those egregious acts. However, it's also important to understand that rape and incest are a vast minority of abortion cases. In fact, the Guttmacher Institute states that of the reasons women seek abortion, rape and incest account for about 1%. Still, many will try to use the marginal case to argue for the rule. Besides, One act of injustice does not justify another. Having an abortion does not reverse the damage done to the woman. Instead, it creates another act of injustice against the baby. In a way, it's the baby being punished for the crime that the rapist committed. Lastly, the circumstances of one's conception do not determine his or her value. We would not look at people who are the victims of rape and tell them that they're somehow of less value and deserve to die. No. There's no difference between a baby who's the product of rape and a baby who is not that would justify killing them. Here's another objection. Abortion is necessary to prevent overpopulation. For this one, I want to quote the late Mike Adams, 
who was presented with the exact same objection to which he humorously responded, quote, I agree, overpopulation is a problem, you first, end of quote. Adams went on to say, quote, if you really believe that, let's test it, but don't be the coward who says someone else shall die. You see, this snarky answer sheds a lot of light on the objection. Besides, overpopulation is not a serious problem facing America right now, nor would it ever be justification for taking innocent life. But won't abortion continue even after it's made illegal? The implications of this point are simply invalid. For instance, one might add, rape is illegal, but it still occurs. Therefore, we should make it legal. This is really a terrible argument. However, many use this point to argue that if abortion is not legal, many women will die from back-alley abortions. While it's certainly a tragedy when women die under those circumstances, deaths due to so-called back-alley abortions are also significantly small in comparison to the amount of deaths to the unborn children due to the legalization of elective abortion. In fact, Planned Parenthood has even admitted that the back-alley abortion narrative is grossly exaggerated. They've stated that roughly 90% of the illegal abortions performed prior to 1973, the year of the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, were in fact performed in their own facilities by medical doctors, not in back alleys. A position that I'm often surprised to hear so many people advocate for is, don't like abortion? Then don't have one, but don't take away my right. But that would be like saying, don't like slavery? Then don't own a slave, but don't take away my right. Or, don't like child abuse? Then don't abuse your child, but don't take away my right. Don't like theft? You get the point. Now you might respond by saying, well, those are different scenarios because slavery, child abuse, and theft are not rights, whereas abortion is. Roe v. Wade protects a woman's right to choose, right? Well, to this I would reply first, no one should have the right to take an innocent life. But secondly, the argument was also made for the Supreme Court cases Plessy v. Ferguson, which legalized racial segregation, or Dred Scott v. Sanford, which declared that blacks are not people, but are property. See, the law does not determine right and wrong. It seeks to recognize it. Unfortunately, though, laws are made by human beings who are sinful and imperfect, and as a result, we often have bad legislation in place, such as Roe v. Wade. One final objection I'll address in this episode is this one. You pro-lifers are so concerned about the unborn, but you don't care about the child once it's already born. You don't even care about the woman who's carrying the child. First, this is simply not true for most pro-life voices. In fact, one of the largest pro-life organizations, known as Live Action, holds a statement that says, Love them both. The implication being that we should love both the child and the mother. Many pro-life organizations care deeply about the mother. In fact, for every one abortion clinic, there's approximately two crisis pregnancy centers. Organizations exist such as Save the Storks, which offer free ultrasounds and counseling to abortion-minded women. Secondly, I agree that there's not enough being done to help children once they're outside of the womb. The foster care system is overwhelmed. But this argument simply misses the issue at hand. Many who are pro-life are simply heartbroken at the realities of abortion in America and want the slaughter of innocent children to stop. This is why they choose to speak up. Can you fault them for not also speaking up on every other issue of the day? But the good news is, on this point, that for every one child in foster care, there's approximately 36 families waiting to adopt. So, to use the foster care system as a means of justifying abortion simply does not follow. 
The last thing I want to say on this is that no one would advocate for killing the children who are in the foster care system simply because they're not wanted. Interestingly, however, this is the position that many pro-choice advocates hold in regards to abortion. The point I'm trying to make is this. The logic is inconsistent with this argument. Before we close today, I just want to address the instances of pregnancy which threaten the life of the mother or of the child. These are possibly the most difficult situations to assess. Again, they deserve our support first and foremost. In an ethical dilemma such as these, we need to evaluate them with wisdom and compassion. The late Dr. Norman Geisler spoke of what he considered graded absolutism. Absolute rights and wrongs do objectively exist. However, ethical dilemmas also exist sometimes, and a decision must be made, though it's never an easy one, and a right answer is not always clear. Even so, a principle known as double effect is sometimes considered, which says that in the event of preventing one tragedy, another unavoidable one occurs, and that is the only viable option, under those circumstances, it is in fact unavoidable. However, it's important to note, the use of marginal cases to argue for the whole is still wrong. In fact, the life of the mother or the child are at risk in only about 1% of these cases. There are probably other objections which proponents of abortion may raise, which need to be answered with grace and truth, but time simply won't permit us to address it in this podcast. However, if I could recommend a few resources for you to consult if you're interested in the topic of defending life, I'd recommend these books, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, or Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments by Randy Alcorn. Remember, we as the church have an obligation to stand for truth. If the church doesn't step up, who will? Our culture is consistently shifting, but God's word never will. I hope you found this helpful. Until next time, I'm Adam Butler. You've been listening to Bubblegum Gospel Podcast.